0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. The requests for today's episode started coming in even before we were officially in a quarantine. Boccaccio. Are you going to read Boccaccio? Are you going to talk about the Decameron? Part of me resisted this. We're in a pandemic. Do we really want to read about one? But Of course, there's more to the Decameron than just the plague. It's a harrowing description of death, in particular the Black Death, the 14th century plague that killed half of Europe, by most estimates. It took Europe 200 years to return to its pre-plague population. The Decameron, which was written during the plague, doesn't shy away from the disease or its effects on the minds of the people. But it's also about life. It's a celebration of life. It's funny and salacious— it's one of the words most often used to describe it earthy, bawdy, sexy. It's broad and schematic, but also unpredictable. It's one of the great works of the Italian Renaissance, and Boccaccio is an essential figure in Renaissance literature and humanist literature. Dante's work, La Divina Commedia, the Divine Comedy, and of course, you probably already know that comedy here does not mean humorous work, but one that stood opposed to tragedy. Those were the two main forms dating back to the days of the Greeks. Tragedy ended with the character's downfall, or fall from grace, we might say. The Divine Comedy, Dante's Divine Comedy, ended with Dante's ascension into heaven. Not a tragedy at all, therefore. Boccaccio's work, the Decameron, has a lot of parallels to Dante's. Boccaccio was born about 50 years after Dante. His tutor was a fan of Dante's and introduced Boccaccio to his works. Boccaccio was himself living in Florence, the city of Dante, walking the same streets. The Divine Comedy famously has 100 cantos, a third in hell, a third in purgatory, a third in heaven. The Decameron, Boccaccio's masterpiece, also has 100 parts, 100 stories told by 10 people who are in the countryside, waiting for the plague to finish ravaging Florence. Here we go, people said. The earthy, body, 100-part decameron. This is fantastic stuff. It's worthy of being mentioned in the same breath as Dante. It's right up there. A masterpiece. Dante's is for the religious look at life, at the inferno and purgatorio and paradiso. Dante gets us closer to God. There's something ethereal about it. It starts in the dark wood, but soon transcends the bounds of earth and takes us on a theological journey this to Cameron. This is about life here on earth. We'll call it the human comedy. Now, here's the interesting thing. Boccaccio was not just a great writer, not just a practitioner of prose and poetry, but a great figure in scholarship and in the recoveries of ancient texts. He was a scholar as well as a storyteller. He was a great advocate for Dante, wrote about him, and it was he who suggested that Dante's work should be called the divine comedy. Dante just called it the comedy, the Commedia. Ocaccio came along and said, let's call it the divine comedy. And many people agreed, yes, because it's so perfect, so transcendent, it's as if God himself has sanctioned it. And that's part of what we mean by divine. Divine is in the work is so great, it's divine. It's divinely inspired. It's godly. We can revere this work as if it were sent to us by the heavens. But divine has two applications here. The second application is to say it's about religion. It's about a religious quest, about what we should do and how we should serve God and what that means. How do we know God? What is the nature of sin in God's eyes? And how do we sinners approach God? What is the situation of human souls after death? That's the divine in the comedy, in the divine comedy. Boccaccio called his work the Decameron. It was left to others to say, well, this is the human comedy, the natural counterpart to the divine comedy. But Boccaccio had maybe opened the door to that. Dante said, here's my work, the Commedia, the comedy. And Boccaccio said, you know what? Dante's work is so good, we should call it the divine comedy. And suddenly there's not just the Commedia; there's room for one more. If the divine comedy is about human souls after death, what about all these human souls before death? and maybe souls is too grand. What about about all these humans, period? How about a 100-part work that tells those stories? Isn't there room for one? It turns out that there was, and Boccaccio, it turns out, is the one who supplied it. Okay, that's a little detour. We're going to have much more about Boccaccio and this amazing work, the Decameron. We'll start today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello. How are you, everyone? Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here with me today. So, here's the deal I am still in quarantine here in Washington, D.C., a.k.a. Crazy Town the capital of a nation that's struggling to get itself situated. A great and mighty nation with flaws as big as its strengths. But that's about all I'm going to say. It would be very tempting to read the Decameron in a compare-and-contrast style with what is happening today. Ah, here are the people who want to live without rules, and here are the people who think it's God's will, and here are the people who are struck with grief— and here are the people who are giddy to survive, and so on. You can find their counterparts in our current scenario, and where you can't, that's interesting too. But our current condition is going to pass, and it deserves its own chroniclers, its own boccaccios. And I want these episodes to be as evergreen as possible, because the literature is evergreen. I read the Decameron long before there was a pandemic here in the United States or around the world, and it was just as good. I want to give Boccaccio and the Decameron their due. I don't want these episodes to be about the headlines of the day here in the 21st century. This work is hundreds of years old, almost 700 years old. It is eternal. It deserves better than to be weighed down by whatever news facts are popping up on my screen to be replaced tomorrow by different screaming headlines and so on. So, Here's what we're going to do today and in the near future. We're going to take a break, listen to a few listener emails, and then I'm going to sketch out Boccaccio's life, the structure of the Decameron, the general themes of the Decameron. The goal here is to put the Decameron in context both in Boccaccio's life and in the history of literature. But it's also to get you ready for how to listen to the Decameron, how to approach it, how to best understand and appreciate it, because it's a very modern work in a lot of ways. It's not one of those older works where you read it and think, oh, geez, I can't relate to any of these people. There is a lot of humanity in the Decameron, and a lot of it is still with us, or it might make us rethink our assumptions about humanity. Sometimes we might think we're getting it wrong. Other times, it might reaffirm why and in what ways we're getting things right. Women, the role of women, female desire, female agency, those are great themes in Boccaccio. He was ahead of his time in turning his gaze to women, trying to see things from their point of view. Does that mean that he was where we are today? We will explore that question, among others. And then what I have in mind are to have multiple episodes on the camera and maybe we'll do one a week for a while. Maybe it will be one a month. I think it's worth giving these stories some space. And now that we have two shows a week, we have a little more room to explore things like that with some running series like this. We'll see. Maybe we'll do another show or two. Maybe we'll do 10 more spread over time. We'll have to see how it goes. This is a journey, people. It's a journey I'm on as well as you guys. <laughs> maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the the main journeyer. <laughs> I can make all the plans I want, but if I sit down at the microphone and I can't bring myself to say another word about X or Y, then X or Y just has to wait, I'm afraid. I'm not a robot. I'm not a machine. I'm not being paid to be systematic. I'm just a guy trying to read and search and discover. I'm a seeker, and I'm sharing that seeking with you. I don't really know why. (laughs) Is Is that strange to admit? It feels strange even to acknowledge that. I've been doing this for years and still can't say exactly why I'm doing it. But sometimes emails help me figure it out. So quick break. Listener emails, then our introduction To Giovanni, sorry, to Giovanni Boccaccio. makes me miss Italy. When will I ever be able to return? Hopefully soon. First up today is an email from Gwendolyn. Subject, please don't stop. Dear Jack, you say some have told you to stop, but I say never stop! Exclamation mark. Gwendolyn. Ha ha. Thank you, Gwendolyn. I'm not planning to stop. I went on a little rant last episode, which I have recovered from. I'm in a better mood now. Yes, Doing this podcast takes a lot of time, and yes, I don't know exactly why I'm doing this thing, but I haven't really been told to stop all that much by that many people. I think it was just once or twice. I may have exaggerated that once in five years because being told to stop is so striking. But hey, what do I care? It's not like Alice Monroe reached out and told me to stop, right? If it's just some guy on the internet, well, why listen to that guy? Why not listen to people of obvious taste and intelligence, like, say, Gwendolyn. Thank you for the email, Gwendolyn. Here's another one responding to my little rant, my little Jane rant. I felt kind of bad afterwards, as if I had attacked Jane. Maybe I did a little. I simply do not understand emails like hers, but it's more than that. You know how sometimes there's criticism where you nod and say, yep, that's the feeling I had too. I was hoping that I'd gotten away with it, but others have noticed. And then there's the criticism where you think, you just don't get it, do you? You just don't get what's happening here, what I'm trying to do. Well, this was the latter, and it was a little smug and condescending, and so I reacted to that. I don't like smug and condescending, and I don't need emails from smug and condescending people. The first kind of email, constructive criticism, that's great. If someone says, I love your podcast, Or, I used to love it, but I think you've lost your way. Well, that's great. That might be something I need to hear. You know what else is great? Telling me about you, yourself, your life, why literature matters. Jane's email had none of that. It was all, you're ignorant. Can't believe how ignorant you are. You made mistakes. She says, much more at one point. Well, who are you, Jane? I've never heard of you. No one has. So if you say, much more, what does that mean to me? How does that help me? Oh, okay. You're sitting on a bunch of secret knowledge, (laughs) secret mistakes. Well, if I had a clue of who you are, then maybe I would care. But if you're just some random person who's sitting in judgment of everyone else, marking down mistakes, well, how does that help? Sorry, I'm on the rant again. We've had enough of Jane, I think. Let's not talk about Jane anymore. But Janeism is in all of us. We all have an inner Jane. You see it on the internet all day long. Some journalist or some expert will write something and the commenters are all full of me, 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 me. Opinions, opinions, opinions. Which is great when it works. I have to admit, I look at the comments whenever I disagree with something to make sure that someone has pointed out (laughs) that this is wrong. But even so, what does it do? All those opinions. It's great when it works. But when it's stripped of context, it's just words being thrown out there. This article is terrible. Well, okay. Glad that you get to have your say. But why? Can you not even be bothered to say why? Not even one detail. You didn't work very hard on this opinion, did you? The author worked a lot harder, even if he or she got something wrong. A thousand times harder. A million. So here's what I like in the emails I get. Tell me who you are what your relationship to literature is. That helps me understand your comments. I love those emails. I could read those all day. The other thing I love is when you tell me why you liked a certain book. If you write to me and say, can you do an episode on my favorite author, Italo Zvevo? That's great. Yes, I like him too. I get a bit out of that. It's a vote in the Svevo column. In fact, I love Zvevo. I've got to do an episode on him soon. Mike's a fan too, of course. Sometimes Mike and I are very predictable. But here's what's even better. I was quitting smoking, and I tried for years to quit. I'm imagining this is your email. I was quitting smoking, Jack, and I tried for years to quit smoking, and then I read Svevo, and I did quit. Or, I read Svevo and decided not to quit. Or something, I'm just making these up on the fly. If you tell me that you found yourself stuck on a raft for two weeks with nothing to read but a copy of Huck Finn, and you saw things in it that you had never seen before, Wow. Now I not only hear that you like Huck Finn, I'm kind of inspired. So if you can, hey, you're free to do what you want, just like I am. If you don't want to share, if you'd rather not, if this doesn't make sense to you, or if you can't imagine ever writing an email or a comment at all, then that's fine. But if you are going to write me, you are free to write as little or as much as you'd like, of course, or to write nothing at all. But if you are, Let's take this out of the realm of emails to Jack and into the realm of literature. This applies to reading literature and talking about literature. I think I've told the Kerouac story before, so I won't tell it again. But this is basically what I'm talking about. It's the difference between saying, Oh, Melville. You're talking about Melville? Well, I read Moby Dick. Have you? Yes, I've read Moby Dick too. End of conversation. What good does that do, the two of you, to have a conversation like that? How about this? How about this instead? I read Moby Dick. I can't imagine that world at all on that ship. I'm stuck inside the house all day, but I wish I could be outside in nature. Me too. You know, Moby Dick is what inspired me to quit my job as a television producer and drive to Colorado and get a job as a ski instructor. And then I got my pilot's license. I felt like I wasn't getting enough exposure to the wildness of nature in my life. Not that I wanted to go chasing my obsessions to a watery grave but I wanted to be open and free and to let the world in. Oh, really, says the first person. Well, I felt the opposite. I felt like I wanted to learn things, to be a scientist, to really study something. I'm not a marine biologist, but I got fascinated with the way Melville talked about the whale, the way he dug in, and with biology in general. And so I went to school and majored in that. And somewhere along the way, I became fascinated by earthworms. And that's why I'm now an expert in earthworms. Earthworms, really? says the first person. Because of Melville's obsession with whales and whaling? Yep, I just wanted to know everything about a subject. And I had a professor who was an expert in earthworms, and she sort of inspired me to look at them in a whole new way. Now, that's a conversation about literature, right? It's about life, too. Think about the first conversation. Have you read Moby Dick? Yes, I've read Moby Dick. Is that valuable? Maybe as a a short of short of a sort of shorthand but it goes an inch when it's so easy to go a mile to give a little of yourself to supply that i mean every reading experience has you in it it has the author and it has you don't just tell us about the author don't just say oh i've read this book okay that's a fact that's great doesn't do a whole lot for other people, for outsiders. Who cares? (laughs) Literature is awesome. The greatest minds in the world have put it out there for us to read, to immerse ourselves in, to enjoy, and to wrestle with. Our minds are engaged by it, stretched, inspired, challenged. So if you're going to talk about literature, try to do justice to it. Don't just say you've read something as if we're all walking around with checklists on our forehead and people want to know what boxes you've checked i really don't care if you've read moby dick or not there are a lot of books out there i don't know you if you tell me you've read it then fine great i smile i nod yep good but if you tell me that moby dick didn't affect you at all but henry james's portrait of a lady changed your life now here we go i still don't know you but now i want to i want to know more how did Portrait of a Lady change your life? In what ways? Who were you before and who were you after? What did you do? Why would Moby Dick not resonate to you, but Portrait of a Lady would? That's fascinating. That's the person I want to be talking to. And that's what I want that person to be telling me. Okay. Here's an email from D. Subject, Salinas, in all caps. Okay, I can see we're. it's going to take us a while before we get Jane out of our system. We're back to Jane, I can tell with that Salinas in all caps, but I'm going to leave that alone and let D do the talking. Jack, I just started the Joyce Carol Oates show. Haven't really got more than 10 minutes into it. I have a few things to share. First, that was a damn good defense you gave to listener Jane concerning the Salinas bullshit. Way to let it rip. <laughs> okay, what I like about this email, not just that it agrees with me, but then it calls it a defense. That's how I feel, too. I was thinking that it was an attack. It wasn't an attack. I don't attack. I don't attack in on the podcast. I don't think I do. And I don't attack in life. But I defend. It's a much better way to think of it. Okay, back to the email. Let me tell you what your show has done for me, says D. I haven't read classic literature since I left teaching and left Colorado Springs some years ago. Your show has... Reannounced that abandoned part of my life. I've been as one marching through a crowded path in a forest, unable to leap from that path even for one moment, to savor the quiet aromas of the trees, the fallen leaves so delicate, the tangled light reflected by tree trunks and bare bare branches, all a joy to the senses. Last week I entered a used bookstore, the book rack which I'd plainly observed many times while passing from the highway here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I never bothered to stop and investigate, until last week. Due to your show, and your show only, I was on a mission. I won't say I encountered the book rack. Rather, the book rack encountered me. I bought so many volumes of classic literature, well over $100 worth, that I had to drive my car up to the front of the store to pile them in. The store's owner was wide-eyed with astonishment. After all, this was Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'll be back for more. I said curtly. More wide-eyed astonishment. Lastly, I might add that bringing it all back home is my second favorite Dylan album, just behind Blonde on Blonde. Glad you brought in the connection to Joyce Carol Oates. I'm in the midst of discovering Dylan's new record. So far, I've only positive things to say about it, but I'm not done discovering. One day, I'll write you a letter just about music. Apparently, you and I have a lot in common there. Keep on truckin'. D. Keep on truckin'. Thank you, D. That's great. I love hearing these stories about rediscovering literature and the energy that it gives you and the wisdom and the tranquility and everything else that people can squeeze out of literature. Here's one from Shanitra, listener Shanitra, our old friend. Shanitra, you remember, the uh, advocate of the Faulkner story. This is the same Shanitra. Shanitra has three boys, If I'm remembering correctly, she doesn't mention them in this email. Subject, where are you going? Hello, Jack. Wow. This text has shaken me a little. Yet I connect with this short story on so many levels. The illusion of sex as power, the void created by family issues, the role of music and movies in creating a superficial ideal of sex, romance, and relationships, and those ideals violently clashing with reality of sex and adultish things. I wished I'd read this story during my challenging teenage years. It might have been therapeutic for me then. Thank you for another great episode. Be blessed and stay safe. Shanitra. Yes. Thank you, Shanitra. That's a great description of the Joyce Carolode story we examined last time. I'm glad to hear that it had that effect on you. It's a powerful story. Indeed. It's 50 years old, actually even older than 50 years old. Can you believe it? It's still pretty fresh. I wonder if it would have been therapeutic during your teenage years, though. I wonder. I think Evie pointed out something. Teenagers might not appreciate it. Oh yeah, stop preaching at me. Maybe you would have wanted to make your own mistakes and maybe you wouldn't have wanted to listen to literature. We ignore teachers and parents and and television and literature too, maybe. Or maybe it would have resonated. Okay, last one. Here's one from Prachi. Subject, the History of Literature Podcast. Hi, Jack. I'm 18 years old, and I'm currently in my final year of high school in Australia. I recently discovered your podcast and have since been in an absolute whirlwind, binging episode after episode. This year is my second studying literature, and your insight and soothing voice is absolutely a vice amid this frantic time. I started with your Keats podcasts. A friend had recommended them as she had found someone who is just as enamored with Keats as we are. (laughs) That's in quotes, parentheses. To be fair, how could you not be? And from there, I started listening on the train, walking between classes, wherever I could find a spare minute. About 25 minutes in, I realized how quickly it was coming to an end. So I still refused to listen to the last five minutes and let the brilliance end. But it was not this that made me write in today. Promptly after Keats, I jumped to the start with the intention of reading every text and then listening to your podcast on it. Having studied Keats in school before listening had made me realize just how exceptional your insight was, and I was keen to replicate that as many times as I could, which is where I came to your segment on Hindu and Indian literature. As a born Indian individual who immigrated at age seven, I have constantly experienced a distance with my culture, much to the dismay of my grandfather, who has a PhD for for- (laughs) sorry, who has a PhD for studying the Shastra in Sanskrit. Your podcast gave me another insight into my culture, making me open my copies of (laughs) Mahabharata and Ramayana instead of working on the many essays in line and reconnecting with a heritage I forget too easily. It has been one of the most astounding, most rousing experiences of my life. So now I sit here at midnight having listened to another podcast, having not done as much homework as I could have if I hadn't listened to another podcast, but I sit here without regret, thanking you for the opportunity to reconcile with a gap I thought I'd never be able to bridge. Thank you not just for this, but also for the beauty you have brought to the mundane parts of my life and for the poetry in your descriptions of your experiences. I think I've gone on a bit too long— but I look forward to even more podcasts and learning ahead. Best, Prachi. Wow. Thank you, Prachi. Imagine getting an email from Jane. Poor Jane. I really picked on her too much. But imagine if you're me and you get an email from Jane, which she just dashed off after hearing Mike or me. I'm not even sure who pronounced Salidas in a way she didn't like. Imagine her dismissing the entire podcast based on something or other she found ignorant about something we said about the Monterey Peninsula. Mm Mm-hmm. Who cares, Jane? Go read an encyclopedia. Imagine if you're me getting an email like that, and then you get dozens and hundreds of emails like the ones from Dee and from Shanitra and from Prachi. They're complimentary, which is flattering and humbling, but I'm not an egomaniac, or at least not most of the time. I'm not sitting around here thinking I need to get praise. I want to connect with people. I don't want adulation. And here are three people who've emailed me and yes, there's a connection. It's through literature. Prachi, Prachi tells me something that's all about me and the podcast, but it's really all about Prachi too. It's about this profound effect that the podcast has had on her, but even more so the effect that literature has had on her. I am rooting for Prachi. Rooting for Prachi because she's 18 and yet has discovered Keats' And appreciates Keats and the beauty of Keats. That's a really nice side of Prachi. We already know that. And she has a friend who shares that with her too. And because Prachi has a heritage, a culture that she's discovering and rediscovering, and we all go through that relationship with our heritage, there are times when we embrace it and times when we push it away. And times when we ignore it or think we're ignoring it, times when we want to ignore it and we can't, and times when we really want to understand it and it seems like we can't too. We want to take it apart like an engine to see how it works and how it's affected us. Literature is one of those ways. It helps us do that. If you want to understand the people of a nation or an era or a, a heritage, literature is right there. You can study economics and political systems and Find out that people lived under a king and they were agrarian or industrialized or whatever. But when you want to know what entertained people, what delighted them, what made them laugh, how they thought about each other, what it was like to fall in love, or to be jealous, or to be scared, or to be inspired, look at literature. It's all in there, people. It's all in there. So, thank you, Prachi, for reminding me of that. And good luck to you. We're headed for Boccaccio now, but first I've got some news to share. The History of Literature has joined the Podglomerate podcast network, which is home to shows like Storybound and Rocketship.fm. The Podglomerate is a premier podcast company that helps to produce, distribute, and monetize podcasts and will be helping the History of Literature to find more listeners. Nothing will change for you, the listener, except that occasionally we'll be promoting some fun shows. We might run them right here on this feed with a little introduction from yours truly. I think you will like having a little break from me and my voice. I could use a little break too. <laughs> my, my poor voice. Two shows a week is kind of a lot. Remember, I also have a full-time job. And I'm also a parent. It's not all cake and champagne here at the Jack Wilson Studio. It's kind of a grind sometimes. So I will welcome the chance to bring you some good content from a slightly different angle. That's the Podglomerate Network which I'm excited about joining. There are some good folks there who have a lot of great ideas for the history of literature and for podcasting in general. If you're so inclined, you can check out more of their shows at www.thepodglomerate.com or follow them on social media. Giovanni Boccaccio after this. Giovanni Boccaccio was born in 1313. His family was from Certaldo, a Tuscan town outside of Florence. And he was either born in Certaldo, Certaldo, or in Florence itself. There are some unknowns about his background. He appears to have been born out of wedlock, and some say his mother was French. We know more about his stepmother and, of course, his father, Boccacino di Cellino, who was a successful man working for the Bardis, a powerful banking family. In his early years, Boccaccio was introduced to Dante's works, which had a profound effect on him. This is the great humanist phase of literature and history, when scholars were rediscovering ancient works and writing both in Latin and in the vernacular, all of it with a great overlay of religious scholarship thanks to the influence of the powerful Christian Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which could either be adopted or rejected to some extent, I mean the scholarship. It was a force to be reckoned with either way. When Giovanni, well, let's call him Boccaccio now. When Boccaccio was 14 or so, his father got a job running a bank in Naples, and he took his son with him. This was another formative period for Boccaccio. He worked at the bank for six years and hated it. He begged his father to let him study law instead, or specifically canon law, ecclesiastical law, the law laid down by papal pronouncements and such He was unsuccessful at this, too. He had a pursuit now that he liked better. His father's position had put him in touch with many scholars and dignitaries, and he was turning to poetry and literature. This brings us to topic number two. What did Boccaccio write other than the Decameron? Boccaccio got started writing about myths and romances. He wrote a short poem called Diana's Hunt when he was in his early 20s, a long romance set in the Trojan War. Another epic called Tezeda, or the Theseid, which Chaucer used as an inspiration for the Knight's Tale. There were a few others as well. Some of these were in verse, some were in prose. Boccaccio was developing an innovative style, or maybe we could say advancing a style or perfecting a style. He was very good at dialogue. It's a little strange that that was such an innovation, but you have to remember where we are in literature. We have plays and we have poems. Plays are written for the stage, and poems typically are not written in a voice that people actually use in their everyday speaking life. You can kind of see where dialogue, which for us is so familiar and so basic, those of us who are steeped in novels, was maybe not that well developed in the age when things were in verse and written for the stage. We are still 200 years away from Shakespeare, let alone novelists like Jane Austen, who helped bring prose dialogue into modern shape, even the great Don Quixote, which many claim as the first modern novel, is still 250 years away. Boccaccio was early. During this period of his 20s, Boccaccio returned to Florence. He wrote some works disparaging the city, kind of a quasi-satirical work. He wrote a pastoral poem. He was writing about love and women. And you get the sense that the taste for Falling head over heels in love, described so vividly 50 years earlier by the master Dante in works like La Vita Nuova, was still alive and well in the Florence of Boccaccio's day. And maybe it's still alive in the Florence of our day today. Florence is a special city. Boccaccio started his masterpiece, the Decameron, in 1348, when he was in his mid-30s, and that kind of did it. He was still active but he was almost finished writing in the vernacular now. He only, only wrote one more work in the vernacular after the Decameron, nothing even close to being as imaginative as his masterpiece. He wrote a successful encyclopedia of classical myths, and he wrote some treatises on Dante that are still kind of interesting, given the two figures involved. He wrote a few more things, but it's the Decameron that deserves our attention and which we will turn to now. What was the Decameron? What was its structure? The Decameron was written in the wake of the plague known as the Black Death, and the Black Death gives the work its structure. Decameron means 10 days, or 10 days of an event, or maybe 10 days work. The key here is that it's 10. We have 10 times 10. As the plague sweeps across Florence, 10 people move to a villa outside Florence to avoid the worst of the disease The ten of them, seven women and three men, decide that each of them will take a turn as the king or queen for the day, depending on the day's activities and entertainments. Storytelling is one of those activities, and each person will give a story on each of the ten days. That's the ten times ten. The king or queen will choose the theme for the stories that day. So we end up with ten days of ten stories each, one hundred stories, framed in a way kind of like the thousand and one Arabian Nights or as Chaucer was to do with his Canterbury Tales. Chaucer was hugely influenced by Boccaccio. By the way, there's a direct line there. Themes of the Decameron. One of the striking things about the Decameron and Boccaccio's worldview is this treatment of women. As we said, there were seven women narrators and only three men. Within the stories, too, women are often a focus, as the stories revolve around the plight of women, the desires of women, the agency of women. Even the title itself, or the subtitle, I should say, is often viewed as an allusion to women, sort of a, a credo, a statement. The subtitle is Principe Galliotto or Prince Galahot. Who was Prince Galahot? Well, for that, we need to do a little digging. Remember the reverence that Boccaccio had for Dante. Boccaccio was deeply immersed in Dante. It was the water he swam in, the air that he breathed. And one of the most striking passages in the Inferno Dante's Inferno is the one with Paolo and Francesca. Do you remember this? Paolo and Francesca are consigned to hell. They are sinners. What did they do wrong? They were reading of Lancelot and Guinevere, the two lovers, in the Knights of the Round Table story. And the story inspired them to their own sinful act of lovemaking. This is the passage where they say, and we read no more that day. It's a nice little tip of the cap to the power of literature, by the way. I guess you could say it's an attack on literature. If you're so inclined, you could say it's an attack on literature for sending them to hell for, <laughs> for compromising their morals. But a nicer way to look at it is that literature inspired them to live life to the fullest, to embrace passion as one of life's joys, and that their love for one another and their desire for sex as a consummation of that love were worth going to hell for. I find it inspiring anyway. I'm not here to wag my finger at literature and scold it. I'm here to celebrate it. If it helps you find love, then that's great, in my opinion. We don't need to cast stones at sinners. We should be venerating the beauty of love in all its forms. They weren't hurting anyone. I think all this that I've just said is kind of Boccaccio's view as well. And his title, Principe Galeotto, is a nod to that. Prince Galahot was the friend of Lancelot, who helped arrange his meeting with Guinevere, the wife of King Arthur, which turned out to be the love story that inspired Paolo and Francesca. True love finds a way, people. Sometimes you need a Prince Galahot to help it along. That's sort of the patron saint or presiding spirit over the Decameron. Love's great broker we will get into much more of the themes of the decameron when we start looking at the actual stories which will be in upcoming episodes next up the black death let's turn to the black death the backdrop for all of this i want to read boccaccio's description of what was happening in florence in these days when the when the decameron takes place when the speaking of the i mean the storytelling of the decameron takes place it's a remarkable passage and deserves a little of our attention. It'll give us a flavor of who Boccaccio is and how he writes and his sensibility. And it's just a wonderful description, especially in our own days of pandemic. So here we go. This is from day one, the introduction, where Boccaccio is talking about the plague. Let me say, then, that 1,348 years had passed since the fruitful incarnation of the Son of God, when the deadly plague arrived in the noble city of Florence, the most beautiful of any in Italy. Whether it descended on us mortals through the influence of the heavenly bodies, or was sent down by God in His righteous anger to chastise us because of our wickedness, it had begun some years before in the East— where it deprived countless beings of their lives before it headed to the west, spreading ever greater misery as it moved relentlessly from place to place. Against it, all human wisdom and foresight were useless. Vast quantities of refuse were were removed from the city by officials charged with this function, the sick were not allowed inside the walls, and numerous instructions were disseminated for the preservation of health, but all to no avail nor were the humble supplications made to God by the pious, not just once but many times, whether in organized processions or in other ways, any more effective. For practically from the start of spring in the year we mentioned above, the plague began producing its sad effects in a terrifying and extraordinary manner. It did not operate as it had done in the East, where if anyone bled through the nose it was a clear sign of inevitable death. Instead, at its onset, in men and women alike, certain swellings would develop in the groin or under the armpits, some of which would grow like an ordinary apple, and others like an egg, some larger and some smaller. The common people called them gavoccioli, and within a brief space of time, these deadly so-called gavoccioli would begin to spread from the two areas already mentioned and would appear at random over the rest of the body. Then the symptoms of the disease began to change, and many people discovered black or livid blotches on their arms, thighs, and every other part of their bodies, sometimes large and widely scattered, at other times tiny and close together. For whoever contracted them, these spots were a most certain sign of impending death, just as the Gavaccioli had been earlier and still continued to be. Against these maladies, the advice of doctors and the power of medicine appeared useless and unavailing. Perhaps the nature of the disease was such that no remedy was possible, or the problem lay with those who were treating it, for their number, which had become enormous, included not just qualified doctors, but women as well as men, who had never had any training in medicine. And since none of them had any idea what was causing the disease, they could hardly prescribe an appropriate remedy for it. Thus, not only were very few people cured, but in almost every case, death occurred within three days after the appearance of the signs we have described, sometimes sooner and sometimes later, and usually without fever or any other complication. Moreover, what made this pestilence all the more virulent was that it was spread by the slightest contact between the sick and the healthy, just as a fire will catch dry or oily materials when they are placed right beside it. In fact. This evil went even further, for not only did it infect those who merely talked or spent any time with the sick, but it also appeared to transfer the disease to anyone who merely touched the clothes or other objects that had been handled or used by those who were its victims. What I have to tell is incredible, and if I and many others had not seen these things with our own eyes, I would scarcely dare to believe them, let alone write them down, no matter how trustworthy the, pe- the person was who told me about them. Let me just say that the plague I have been describing was so contagious as it spread that it did not merely pass from one man to another, but we frequently saw something much more incredible. Namely, that when an animal of some species other than our own touched touched something belonging to an individual who had been stricken by the disease or had died of it, that animal not only got infected, but was killed almost instantly. With my own eyes, as I have just said, I witnessed such a thing on many occasions." One day, for example, two pigs came upon the rags of a poor man that had been thrown into the public street after he had died of the disease, and as they usually do, the pigs first poked at them with their snouts, after which they picked them up between their teeth and shook them against their jowls. Thereupon, within a short time, after writhing about as if they had been poisoned, both of them fell down dead on the ground, splayed out upon the rags that had brought about their destruction. These things, and many others like them, or even worse, caused all sorts of fears and fantasies in those who remained alive, almost all of whom took one utterly cruel precaution, namely, to avoid the sick and their belongings, fleeing far away from them, for in doing so they all thought they could preserve their own health. Some people were of the opinion that living moderately and being abstemious would really help them resist the disease. They therefore formed themselves into companies and lived in isolation from everyone else. Having come together, they shut themselves up inside houses where no one was sick and they had ample means to live well, so that, while avoiding overindulgence, they still enjoyed the most delicate foods and the best wines in moderation. They would not speak with anyone from outside, nor did they want to hear any news about the dead and the dying, and instead they passed their time playing music and enjoying whatever other amusements they could devise. Others, holding the contrary opinion, maintained that the surest medicine for such an evil disease was to drink heavily, enjoy life's pleasures, and go about singing and having fun, satisfying their appetites by any means available, while laughing at everything, and turning whatever happened into a joke. Moreover, they practiced what they preached to the best of their ability, for they went from one tavern to another, Drinking to excess both day and night. They did their drinking more freely in private homes, however, provided that they found something there to enjoy or that held out the promise of pleasure. Such places were easy to find because people, feeling as though their days were numbered, had not just abandoned themselves but all their possessions too. Most houses had thus become common property, and any stranger who happened upon them could treat them as if he were their rightful owner. And yet, While these people behaved like wild animals, they always took great care to avoid any contact at all with the sick. In the midst of so much affliction and misery in our city, the respect for the reverend authority of the laws, both divine and human, had declined just about to the vanishing point, for like everyone else, their officers and executors, who were not dead or sick themselves, had so few personnel that they could not fulfill their duties. Thus, people felt free to behave however they liked. There were many others who took a middle course between the two already mentioned, neither restricting their diet so much as the first, nor letting themselves go and drinking and other forms of dissipation so much as the second, but doing just enough to satisfy their appetites. Instead of shutting themselves up, they went about, carrying some carrying flowers in their hands, others with sweet-smelling herbs, and yet others with various kinds of spices. They would repeatedly hold these things up to their noses, for they thought the best course was to fortify the brain with such odors against the stinking air that seemed to be saturated with the stench of dead bodies and disease and medicine. Others, choosing what may have been the safer alternative, cruelly maintained that no medicine was better or more effective against the plague than flight. Convinced by this argument, and caring for nothing but themselves, a large number of both men and women abandoned their own city, their own homes, their relatives, their properties and possessions, and headed for the countryside, either that lying around Florence, or, better still, that which was farther away. It was as if they thought that God's wrath, once provoked, did not aim to punish men's iniquities with the plague wherever it might find them, but would strike down only those found inside the walls of their city or perhaps they simply concluded that no one in Florence would survive, and that the city's last hour had come. Of the people holding these varied opinions, not all of them died, but by the same token, not all of them survived. On the contrary, many proponents of each view got sick here, there, and everywhere. Moreover, since they themselves, when they were well, had set the example for those who were not yet infected, they, too, were almost completely abandoned by everyone, as they languished away. And leaving aside the fact that the citizens avoided one another, that almost no one took care of his neighbors, and that relatives visited one another infrequently, if ever, and always kept their distance, the tribulation of the plague had put such fear into the hearts of men and women, that brothers abandoned their brothers, uncles their nephews, sisters their brothers, and very often wives their husbands. In fact, what is even worse, and almost unbelievable, is that fathers and mothers refused to tend to their children and take care of them, treating them as if they belonged to someone else. Consequently, the countless numbers of people who got sick, both men and women, had to depend for help either on the charity of the few friends they had who were still around, or on the greed of their servants, who would only work for high salaries out of all proportion to the services they provided. For all that, though, there were few servants to be found, and those few tended to be men and women of limited intelligence, most of whom, not trained for such duties, did little more than hand sick people the few things they asked for or watch over them as they died. And yet, while performing these services, they themselves often lost their lives along with their wages. As a result of the abandonment of the sick by neighbors, friends, and family, and in light of the scarcity of servants, there arose a practice hardly ever heard of before, whereby when a woman fell ill, no matter how attractive or beautiful or noble, she did not object to having a man as one of her attendants, whether he was young or not. Indeed, if her infirmity made it necessary, she experienced no more shame in showing him every part of her body— Than she would have felt with a woman, which was the reason why those women who were cured were perhaps less chaste in the period that followed. Moreover, a great many people chanced to die who might have survived if they had had any sort of assistance. In general, between the inadequacy of the means to care for the sick and the virulence of the plague, the number of people dying both day and night was so great that it astonished those who merely heard tell of it, let alone those who actually witnessed it. As a result of the plague, it was almost inevitable that practices arose among the citizens who survived that went contrary to their original customs. It used to be the case, as it is again today, that the female relatives and next-door neighbors of a dead man would come to his house and mourn there with the women of the household, while his male neighbors and a fair number of other citizens would assemble in front of the house with his male relatives. After that, the clergymen would arrive— their number depending on the social rank of the deceased, who would then be carried on the shoulders of his peers, amid all the funeral pomp of candles and chants, to the church he had chosen before his death. As the ferocity of the plague began to increase, such practices all but disappeared in their entirety, while other new ones arose to take their place. For people did not just die without women around them, but many departed this life without anyone at all as a witness and very few of them were accorded the pious lamentations and bitter tears of their families. On the contrary, in place of all the usual weeping, mostly there was laughing and joking and festive merrymaking, a practice that women, having largely suppressed their feminine piety, had mastered in the interest of preserving their health. Moreover, there were few whose bodies were accompanied to church by more than ten or twelve of their neighbors, nor were they carried on the shoulders of their honored and esteemed fellow citizens, but by a band of grave diggers, come up from the lower classes, who insisted on being called sextons, and performed their services for a fee. They would shoulder the bier and quick march it off, not to the church that the dead man had chosen before his demise, but in most cases to the one closest by. They would march behind four or six clergymen who carried just a few candles, and sometimes none at all, and who did not trouble themselves with lengthy, solemn burial services, but instead, with the aid of all those sextons, dumped the corpse as quickly as they could into whatever empty grave they found. The common people, and most of those of the middling sort, presented a much more pathetic sight, for the majority of them were constrained to stay in their houses either by their hope to survive or by their poverty. Confined thus to their own neighbourhoods, they got sick every day by the thousands, and having no servants or anyone else to attend to their needs, they almost invariably perished. Many expired out in the public streets both day and night, and although a great many others died inside their houses, the stench of their decaying bodies announced their deaths to all their neighbours well before anything else did. And what with these, plus the others who were dying all over the place, the city was overwhelmed with corpses. For the most part, the neighbors of the dead always observed the same routine, prompted more by a fear of contamination from the decaying bodies than by any charity they might have felt. Either by themselves or with the aid of porters, whenever any could be found, they carried the bodies of the recently deceased out of their houses and put them down by the front doors, where anyone passing by, especially in the morning, could have seen them by the thousands. Then the bodies were taken and placed on biers that had been sent for or for lack of biers on wooden planks. Nor was it unusual for two or three bodies to be carried on a single bier. for on more than one occasion they were seen holding a wife and a husband, two or three brothers, a father and a son, or other groups like that. And countless were the times when a couple of priests bearing a cross would go to fetch someone, and porters carrying three or four biers would fall in behind them, so that whereas the priests thought that they had one corpse to bury, they would have six or eight, and sometimes more. Even so, however, there were no tears or candles or mourners to honor the dead. On the contrary, it had reached the point that people who died were treated the same way that goats would be treated nowadays. Thus, it is quite clear that things which the natural course of events, with its small, infrequent blows, could never teach the wise to bear with patience, the immensity of this calamity made even simple people regard with indifference. There was not enough consecrated ground to bury the enormous number of corpses that were being brought to every church, every day, at almost every hour, especially if they were going to continue the ancient custom of giving each one its own plot. So, when all the graves were full, enormous trenches were dug in the cemeteries of the churches, into which the new arrivals were put by the hundreds, stowed layer upon layer, like merchandise in ships, each one covered with a little earth, until the top of the trench was reached. Hmm. End quote. Next question. Why is this a comedy? It's a stunning passage we just heard. Why is this a comedy? Why is this not a tragedy? Well, Let's hear a couple of paragraphs where Boccaccio talks about that. In typical Boccaccio fashion, he addresses these paragraphs to women. Women were reading in Boccaccio's time. They were reading in the vernacular, actually before Boccaccio's time. We see this in Dante as well. And there's this feeling that women are reading and learning and absorbing and maybe criticizing. They're discussing these works. And what should the role of literature be? To educate them? To entertain them? To mold them in some fashion? Instill good qualities in them? Make them moral? Or not. This is not about that. This is just a description of the work that's going to follow. This comes at the start of day one, part of the introduction. Boccaccio is about to describe the plague, but first he writes the following to the women whom he knows will be reading this work. He says, Most gracious ladies, whenever I contemplate how compassionate you all are by nature, I recognize that in your judgment, The present work will seem both somber and painful, for its opening contains the sad record of the recent deadly plague, which inspired so much horror and pity in all who actually saw it, or otherwise came to know of it. But I do not want you to be afraid of reading beyond this introduction, as though you would always be going forward amid continual sighs and tears. You will be affected by this horrific beginning no differently than travelers are, by a steep and rugged mountain." For beyond it there lies a most beautiful and delightful plain, which will supply them with pleasure that matches the difficulty of both their ascent and their descent. And thus, just as happiness at its limit turns into sadness, so misery is ended by the joy that follows it. This brief pain—I call it brief because it is contained in just a few words will be quickly followed by the sweetness and pleasure that I have just promised you, and that such a beginning would not, perhaps, have led you to expect, had I not explained what is about to happen. And truly, if in all honesty I could have led you where I want to go by any route other than by such a difficult path as this one will be, I would have done so gladly. But because, without recalling these events, I could not explain the origins of the things you will read about later on, I have been forced by necessity, as it were, To write it all down. So there we see he's addressing this to us as well as to the most gracious ladies, I would say. The comedy, remember what it is here. It's not humor, although there will be plenty of that. But we're saying that this is a work with a happy ending. And Boccaccio is saying, even though there's this black cloud of a plague, we can see a silver lining. We climb the mountain and there's a delightful plain on the other side. There's still life being lived. And here, we are going to look at these 10 people, at these 10 marvelous nights, and these 100 stories that get told, the 100 stories of love and passion and mistakes and confusion and travel and inward reflection and reversals and triumphs. That's the happy ending. And that's why we are going to spend more time with the Decameron. Not because it's a description of the plague, or not just because of that, but because out of that plague came a great work of literature. And in the story too. The same thing happened. Out of the plague came these stories. It's a great reminder to all of us. Next subject, we're getting toward the end here, the turn in Boccaccio's life. Boccaccio's life after the Decameron is not as inspiring. He met Petrarch, which was great, another deep influence on him. The two of them sort of worked together to bring about uh, Renaissance humanism. Boccaccio became more religious. He became a little misogynistic. He gained a lot of weight, seems to be unhappy with himself. He became notorious for how large he became. He lived out his final 13 years in Cerataldo, the town his father came from, where he died at the age of 62. The Decameron today, the influence of Boccaccio lives on. Shakespeare was influenced, and of course Chaucer and many others. The Decameron is still popular, widely read, both within Italy and without. It's the stories. That's the thing. It's important, an important text. It was a pioneer. It has its role as a milestone in the kind of literature that was being written and literary technique and all of that. But in the end, we humans are a storytelling animal. We all do it. We all make sense of the world that way. We communicate with one another that way. We remind people of things with stories. And we pass along lessons and advice with stories. And we use stories to make people laugh or tell them who we are or to tell them what we care about. We seduce people with stories. We acknowledge their importance with stories. We exert power over them through the use of stories. And we express our humility, too. We live and breathe stories. It's how we function. We know what stories are, and we know what good stories are. And that's why we still read Boccaccio and the Decameron, because it's full of stories, and because it has some good ones. Mm, That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm a little exhausted. We're going to have some good episodes coming up. Tom Parada will be joining us. That's one you won't want to miss. And Mike's coming back with some George Orwell, another five star episode. Five stars? Why not ten? Why not all the stars in the sky? We're creating our own little universe here, people, helped by these out of this world writers and these out of this world guests. And so, why can't we just make all the stars we want to? I could be vain and say that yes, these are infinite star episodes, but I'm not that egotistical, so I'll just say they're worth half that many stars. Gives us some room to improve. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.